Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, we already dealt with why an evil and adulterous gener generation seeks for a sign. So we're going to pick up where Jesus is saying that the only sign going to be given to them was the sign of Jonah. Now, but before we get into the sign of Jonah... Let me remind you, had they had no signs until that time that the sign of Jonah was going to come? No, of course, we've already been looking at the fact that he had been doing all these signs and the healings and the demon removal and all that stuff. He has already been doing signs, many signs. But they say, we want to see a big sign, a bigger sign. And we dealt with that last study and how many of us are not satisfied with the fact that God has revealed to us everything we need. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. Everything we need for life and godliness is already ours. And how many of us still today say, yeah, but Lord, if you would do this, then I'll and the danger of that. Go to Matthew chapter 16 real quick and look at verses one through four. <clears throat> In Matthew 16, verses one through four, it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So here again, Jesus says the same thing to this group, or in another area most likely. And what he was pointing out to them was, you guys even know how to recognize the weather and the signs of what's going to be happening weather-wise. How many of you ever grew up with the old saying, red sky in the morning, sailors take warnings, red sky at night, sailors delight? Remember that? Yeah, it's the same kind of a thing that Jesus points out here. And he says, you know how to recognize the signs of what's going to be happening weather-wise. Why aren't you recognizing what's going on around you? He had already, through what he had been doing, through his birth and where it happened, and through what was happening and the prophecies being fulfilled and his coming and the as we're going to touch on just a little bit, his healings and the miracles that he was doing, the signs of what was going to be happening were all right there. The prophecies had already been telling them about what the Messiah was going to be and look like, and they had been there, yet they're oblivious to it. And they said, well, we want a big sign. By the way, does that sound familiar? Isn't that kind of what Satan was trying to say to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness? Climb up onto the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down. Because then everybody will be impressed and believe in you. I don't, know if, don't want you to, I don't want you to miss this. This is not only these people being showing their evil hearts. It's also Satan still coming at Jesus again from another angle. Same thing, but using the people now. Jesus also said that these signs that he was doing are actually the signs that had been purposed for Jesus all along. Remember, he had been talking already like we looked at earlier in our study in previous weeks how he's been doing these signs and they just were ignoring them. These signs of, like I said, the healings and so on had already been prophesied by the Father and Jesus, the miracles that he had already been performing had been purposed by the Father for him already. Go to Isaiah 42 and let me kind of show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I just referenced the fact that he told them, you guys, you know how to recognize the weather signs, but you can't recognize the signs that are happening in your midst. These are the signs that he's referring to. And Isaiah 42, look at verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. By the way, stop real quick. Does that sound familiar to anyone when we hear God say, in my chosen one, in whom my soul delights? Same thing he said at his baptism. The father spoke and everybody heard him say this. This is my son, in whom I delight, in whom I'm well pleased. You want to talk about a sign? I have put my spirit upon him. He, is, he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to what? Open the eyes of the blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So here God said, look, here's my servant. Here's my chosen one, the one I please. I'm going to lead him in righteousness. He's not going to be one of these flashy people that's loud in the streets and at the same time, I'm going to use him to bring justice to the nations, and he's going to open the eyes of the blind. Go to Isaiah 61. Look at verses, six, uh, verses 1 and 2. This is the passage that Jesus referenced as well, along with Isaiah 42, when John the Baptist was sitting in prison wondering if Jesus really was the one. And all Jesus said, you go back and tell John what you hear and see. And he quoted from here. And Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to what? Bring good news to the poor. Isn't that what Jesus told? Remember in our study of Matthew 11? He says, you tell them the good news is being preached to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Now, Jesus had been doing signs. He had been fulfilling signs, giving them signs, actually prophesied signs in the Old Testament. He had been fulfilling them. And that's why he said to him, you guys can recognize the signs of the weather. You're not able to recognize the fact that signs are happening right now. By the way, I just make a little commercial. I encourage you, please read your Bibles, read the Old Testament, read the prophecies in the New Testament as well about what's going to be happening right before and around the time of Jesus' return. As you look at the scriptures and you look at the fact that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to the nation of Israel. And he's going to be redeeming Israel. And as you know, the prophecy said there's going to be a temple in Israel that the Antichrist is going to step into. And he's going to chase the Israelites out of Israel in that last period. Right? So they, they hide in the wilderness and Jesus returns. When all that's, Israel's going to be in the land for that to happen, don't they? And that's all happened in our lifetime. When the nation of Israel became a nation again in 1948. And they had been out of the land for almost 2,000 years and then by God's miracle, they were brought back into the land. That's not the fulfillment of all the, I'm going to regather Israel, like God said, because they're going to have to be chased out again. But they got to be in the land to be chased out. Keep watching what's going on. The Bible prophecies all along have said that Russia and China and Iran and Turkey were all going to be enemies of Israel and come against Israel in the last days. And guess what? For the longest time, Turkey actually was an ally of Israel. But within the last 10 years, they have totally flipped. And now all of a sudden, they're an enemy. And if you read anything the last week, China and Russia are gathering together to help Iran and North Korea because of the sanctions that are happening by the U.S. Folks, read your Bibles. You'll be ready for what's going to be going on around you. You don't want to be one of those people that say, well, I didn't know that was all going on. You don't want Jesus, when, you, when he comes and get us, say, why weren't you ready? I had the, gave you the signs. I told you what was going to be happening. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Go to Isaiah 53. See, because Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of what? The sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be killed and come back to life. And there were even hints at the fact that it would be three days. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Isaiah 53, look at verses 7 through 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his what? All right, so he's going to die. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall what? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute. We thought that the prophecy said he was going to die. Yes, the prophecy said he was going to die, even though he had done no guilt. And it pleased the Lord to crush him. Yet, once his soul has made an offering, he's going to live again. He's going to see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, was poured, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many to make intercession for the transgressors. The scripture says that after he's died, he's going to come alive again, and he's not only going to see his offspring because of what he's done, he's also going to be sharing a portion with them. The prophecy said he would die and rise again. Go to Psalm 16. I can't stress enough to you how much prophecy is in the book of Psalms. Don't just see the book of Psalms as a songbook. It is full of prophecy. Psalm 16, look at verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here uh, he said, David's writing, and he says, You're not going to abandon his soul to Sheol or let his Holy One see corruption. Now, when you read that, you think, Well, I'm not sure what that means. Well, that's where the Bible comes in to help us understand it. Jump over to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, look at verses 22 through 36. In Acts 2, Peter's preaching. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Remember, this is the sermon that he's preaching at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. We looked at that last week in our study. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, that he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, you will make me full of gladness with your presence, brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again, as he's full of the Spirit preaching at Pentecost, by the way, was this a sermon that Peter had been working on? No, Peter, just a few days before this, had been going, don't know him, don't know him, don't know him. Yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit takes over and he starts preaching. And the Holy Spirit, through Peter, starts pointing out to him, just like the scripture said, he would die, but he wouldn't rot in the grave. And he wasn't talking about David, because you guys all know that his tomb is still with us. This is talking about Jesus. So actually the sign of Jonah about being in the belly of the earth was actually already prophesied as well. This isn't the first time they've heard about it. Go with me to Hosea chapter 6. In Hosea chapter 6, look at verses 1 and 2. I actually believe this is a dual prophecy and I'll hint at it in just a second. Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, Come, let us return to the Lord 
for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revise us, revive us, and what? On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. I think there's a hint there about the three days in the tomb, but I also think when you put this together with Isaiah 53 and some other prophecies, I believe that actually the scripture kind of hints at the fact that the Jews that actually come to faith at the end of the tribulation period who are turning to Jesus, who are hiding in the wilderness, who are going to look on him whom they've pierced, and they're going to weep and grieve for it. There are prophecy people, and I'm with them, that believe that the Jews are going to be for three days saying he was crucified for our iniquities, he was crushed for our, no, for our, our transgressions, and uh, we're at peace because of him. The prophecy in Isaiah 53, they're going to be saying for three days. And that's why it says, let's return to the Lord. He's torn us. He struck us down. But in three days, he'll raise us up. I believe the Jews are going to be looking for him. And during, at the end of that time period, he's going to come. And it's going to be an awesome time. But at the same time, the scripture, and didn't Jesus himself say to them in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, like I've already laid out for you, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And what? Three days later, I'm going to rise again. The sign of Jonah had been prophesied. Let me just say this to you folks. Jesus only did what the Father wanted him to do. Now, this is important for you to hear this because I don't think you heard me. Because when you hear me, something else is going to happen. All right. Jesus only did what the Father wanted him to do. John chapter 5, verse 19 and following, Jesus said the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. Jesus only did what the Father told him to do. By the way, all these signs that he was doing, was it him doing them? No, it was the Father doing them through him and the fulfillment of the prophecies that the Father had already given years and years before. Has anybody got it yet? I'm going to say it to you one more time. Jesus only did what the Father wanted him to do. Who's got it yet? Uh, not just pre-written. Nobody got it yet? I'm going to say it one more time. Alan, you're going to give it a shot? Jesus is God. Very good. How does that apply to us? If Jesus only did what the Father wanted him to do, and he had all these people saying, do this, do that, do this, do that, and he always said what? Nope. I'm only doing what the Father tells me to do. But Jesus, the one you love is sick. You need to get here right away. I'll get there when it's time, and I'm going to wait until he dies. Lord, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. Nah, that's not my job. Who made me the judge? Lord, tell my sister to help me here in the kitchen. Now, Mary's good. I'm going to say it again. Jesus only did what the Father told him to do and wanted him to do. He didn't do what man told him to do. That's definitely good. God's plan is already set and Jesus has to follow it. But have, has anybody caught how that applies to us yet? Well, oh. I, that may be part of it. That may be part of it. Go ahead, Becky. We definitely should only do what God's telling us to do. But when it comes to us telling Jesus what to do, he's only going to do what the Father tells him to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just like when Jesus was on the earth and all these people were saying, do this and do that and do this and do that. We want you to do this and we want you to do that. And we've all attested last week. We've all a few times in our life said, Lord, but if you'll just do this. That same Jesus hasn't changed. He is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Holy Spirit. He's all one, but he manifests himself in three persons. Listen closely. He's only going to do what he's going to do. There's nothing wrong with us asking, but we need to ask with an attitude that says, you're God and I'm not. And if you say no, that's good. You teach me to ask. You teach me to, to request. You teach me to come to you as my loving Father. But I'm not going to determine whether you're a good God or a bad God by whether or not you do what I want you to do. I want you to do who you are. Go ahead, Mark. According to the will of God. Exactly. The Father's always interceding. The Holy Spirit's interceding for us ahead of time because he already knows what God's purposes are. The things he's allowing to go on in our life, the things that he's putting us through, they're all according to his plan and purpose for each of us. And he's already praying for us ahead of time according with the will of the Father. So, if you want to get lined up with the will of the Father, there's nothing wrong with telling him I'd like this or I'd like that. But have an attitude that says, yet, nevertheless, I lay this aside, not my will, but yours. And if you give it back, then it was your will. If it stays away, 
It was mine. Go ahead. That's exactly how he prayed in the garden. We a lot of times say, Lord, whatever you want. Jesus didn't pray that way. Jesus said, no, here's what I want. Nevertheless, I lay it down. And folks, by the way, that's the best way you're going to know whether or not what you're praying about is your will or God's will. Anybody else like me struggle with knowing if it's my will or God's will? The best way you'll know is if you say, Lord, here's what I want, and I give it up. If it comes back, it was his will. If it stays away, it wasn't his will, and you thank him. But go for it. Uh, there are times when we're not praying for something for ourselves. Right. We're praying for someone else who desperately mm-hmm. is suffering badly. Correct. And that's a time when I really had a problem doing what you said. What, laying your will down? For praying in someone else? Will down. Mm-hmm. You're praying for someone else. I understand, but at the same time, you have come to an understanding that if God says no to you, that's best? For me? Yes. Not for me. But, yes. But I don't think it's best. <laughs> I, I understand. But what I'm just saying, but if you're badly suffering, and if God said to you, Jim, my plan is for you to keep suffering, you're okay with that? How come you trust him with your life, but you don't trust him with somebody else's? I understand. And I appreciate you being honest. Because I'm, because I'm human. I, 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 right. <laughs> I understand. It's always easier for us to deal with suffering than it is to have someone with us that we love suffering. But at the same time, the same God that you trust in your life, that it is best, we have to trust that he's not making a mistake in their life. We have to. I have a lot of trouble doing that. Trust me, I love the fact that you're being honest. That actually is a great thing. I actually preached on that today earlier at another place about how Christians... Try to pretend we're something we're not. I love the fact that you say you struggle with that and you have a hard time. And I bet you there's other people in here that are encouraged by you sharing that because we all struggle with that. It was harder for Becky with me going through cancer than it was for me. But at the same time, we have to remember the same God that I trust with my life. I need to trust that person as well, that he's going to do what's best and perfect in their life, even though I don't understand it and it hurts me to watch them suffer like they do. He wasn't good with you, but bad with them. You see? And it's just where we have to let the truth sink into our hearts. I'm glad you brought that up, though. That's great. Jesus then goes on and says, um, the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, but someone greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of Sheba, or the Queen of South, came up uh, and sought the wisdom of Solomon, and someone greater than Solomon is here. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go with me real quick to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Let me hit this real quick. Because I think it would be valuable for us to actually read these accounts. It might be something that God brings out from his word that you didn't hear from me, which is fine. Jonah, chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster after he had said that he would do to them, and he didn't do it. The whole nation all repented at the preaching of, of, of Jonah and Nineveh. And Jesus said, someone greater than Jonah is here. Go to 1 Kings chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 13. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. 
with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that, God, that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of its table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came on and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. And he made you the king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to the king Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almugwood and precious stones. And the king made the, of, of the almugwood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also lyres and harps for the singers. No such Almagwood has, has been or seen to this day. And King Solomon gave the, to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Jesus referenced this story. and He says this queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she went up just to hear because she'd heard about what God was doing in the nation of Israel and the wisdom he had given this man and the wealth and the prosperity of that nation. And she said, I was blown away. Everything I heard, wasn't even half of it was told. And Jesus said, someone greater than Solomon, something greater than Solomon is here. Think of how much God revealed to them, the people of that day, with Jesus himself standing right there. Think, let that sink in for a minute. Jonah came and preached for a day. Solomon, of course, had wisdom for a period of time. But God himself walked on this earth in their midst. Be careful. Go ahead. God finally destroyed Nineveh down the line because they went back to Baal. And in the same... Down the, down the road, yes. Same way, we had Jesus walk amongst us at one time and then turn back. Yep. Well, the nation of Israel, actually, they were judged later on for the rejection as well. But let me, let me say something to you here. It's very easy for us to say, man, wouldn't that have been awesome to see Jesus, to walk with him and to, to see him in person and... Have you all for, exactly, have you all forgotten what we've been given? We have him. He lives within us. He's available to you on a daily basis. He will never force himself on you, but he's wanting you on a daily basis to choose to lay your flesh and your desire and your will aside and to say, Lord, I want to hear from you. How many, I, I had a man come up to me this, past, this weekend and, and he was talking to me about how, uh, asked me what I did and, and I told him and, and he said, well, I, I go to a certain kind of church and, and we're kind of taught to let the preacher just tell us what, what, what to believe. And we go every week and I said, well, I go to churches and tell them that you don't have to wait to Sunday to Sunday to hear the word of God. You can read it for yourself. And his response was, yeah, I know, but. We have the living word within us. We have the word of God available to us. And some of you still think, well, I could never understand as much as Jim. I'm going to wait until Tuesday to hear what Jim has to say. Folks, my job is to tell you and to show you that you can hear from him yourself. My job is not to have you become followers of me. My job is to show you and to equip you to be ministers of the word of God, to minister to each other, that you will grow up into him who is the head. I'm not going to be one of these guys that's going to try to draw disciples after myself. To follow me. I want to point you to Jesus and I want to say to you, don't say, man, it would have been so cool to have been there and seen Jesus. You have him within you on a daily basis and he's already promised, I will come to you. I will manifest myself to you. You'll know that I'm in you. I will lead you. I will guide you. The question is, will you believe it? You see, these people rejected it because what? They didn't believe it. Will you believe what the, God, the Bible's, God's word has shown you? I could take you, and I don't have time, I could take you to John chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, where Jesus is teaching about Holy Spirit's going to come. Start in verse 15, Holy Spirit's going to come into you. He's been with you, He's going to be in you. He's going to lead you, He's going to guide you, He's going to remind you of everything that I've taught you. 
He's going to take from what is mine and make it known to you. He'll lead you into all the truth. I have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. Folks, listen to me. You have available to you right now. We can sit here and say, man, look at the Ninevites. They responded well, but someone greater than Jonah was there. And, and, and the Queen of Sheba, look what she learned. But someone greater than Solomon was there. He's with you and me right now. We have the ability on a daily basis to let him lead us and guide us. Well, Jim, I've tried it, and I've asked God things, and I didn't hear anything. Remember, <laughs> he's going to do it on God's time and his way, and sometimes he's going to be silent to see if you really believe. You can say you believe, but do you only believe if he does it before Thursday? Or do you believe that he's going to show you even if he waits till after Thursday or 30 Thursdays? Do you understand what I'm saying? There comes a point where we have to say, he said it, and I believe it. And that's when you'll move into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. He definitely, he prayed for us in John 17. He prayed not only for those who were his followers at that time, but also for those of us who would believe without having seen. Yep. Go back to Matthew 12. Look at verses 43 through 45. We're going to jump, we're going to jump subjects here a little bit. As you remember, Matthew kind of compiles things. If you try to read Matthew chronologically, it's going to mess you up. So don't think this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Sometimes it's like that in Matthew, other times it's not. That's why you want to put all the Gospels together. But in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, it says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. I'm going to read this to you again, because this isn't a passage many of us know very well. We haven't heard many people preach on it or teach on it ever. I'm going to read it to you again. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. If you've got one of those Bibles that whatever thing Jesus says is in red, this is all in red, isn't it? When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Let me ask you, is Jesus talking about the spirits coming out of a house and coming back into a house or coming out of a person and going back into a person? Going back into a person. Let me just say this at the start. These verses show that moral reform is not enough to save or even cleanse someone eternally. I'm going to say this to you, folks. You must be born again. You must be born again. Go with me to John chapter 3. We're going to deal with spiritual possession, oppression. We're going to deal with the need to be possessed by Jesus. We're going to get there. We're going to, Susan's question as she's whispering up here in the front. Is that is she is the only talking about people that look good and look like they know God? We're going to deal with all of that. More of that we'll deal with when we get to chapter 13, the parable of the soils and the weeds and the wheat. But in John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 8. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you're from teacher that has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let me just take a real quick second to just say, make a little commercial about something. 
This is a verse that God brought to my mind two Sundays ago as I was in a church and just kind of meditating on his word. And all of a sudden he brought this to my mind. One of the big things that the church today is fighting over is this whole Calvinism, Arminianism, predestination, free will debate where people try to figure out how God does his salvation. Right. And listen to what Jesus said. He said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. In other words, you see the evidence. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus said years ago, you're never going to figure out how salvation works. You'll see the evidence of it. But you're never going to know really how it works. Did he not say that? Let me just encourage you as a brother. Don't get caught up in all those silly debates and arguments over how God saves and whether or not he saves you. And then you believe in all this junk and whether... Just deal with what the scripture says. The Bible says that if you're saved, Jesus did it. But the Bible also said that you have a responsibility. How the two go together, I don't know. And neither do you. And no one does because Jesus said no one will. Leave it alone. Let's get back to what we're talking about, though. You must be born again. Notice how Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, That's been born of the flesh is flesh. What's been born of the spirit is spirit. Back in Matthew chapter 12, the issue was that the unclean spirit came back and found the house empty. He'd been cleaned up. He had had a problem. Demons just don't come into you, folks. They have to be invited. Just like you must invite Jesus in, his spirit in, the demon spirits don't just come in, you invite them in. Now, there's lots of different ways that you can do that by playing with like Ouija boards and spirit guides and tarot cards, and there's lots of different ways you can get the demon spirits in, and many people get sucked into that stuff. There's a spiritual realm of evil, just like there's a spiritual realm of good. Somehow, some way, this individual had allowed a demon to come in and invited them in, and, but as you remember from our study last time, that there were exorcists of the Pharisees who were going around casting out demons. By the way, when they were going around casting out demons, were those people all getting saved? No. And don't just assume that if someone is, has a demon cast out, that they're born again. And so Jesus says, when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes to waterless places. We'll touch on that at the end. Seeking some place to rest. It doesn't find any. So it thinks to itself, I'll go back to where I came from. And he finds it all swept and clean and what? What's that word? Empty. It had not been re-indwelt by someone greater, as we've looked at earlier. So he goes and he gets seven more spirits. And he says, hey, there's a party house here. And the man of the individual, the man of the woman, ends up in a worse condition than they were before. Go to John chapter 5. I love the sound of that rain on the roof. That means none of you are in a hurry to get out of here. <laughs> John chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 5, it says, After this, John 5, verse 1, there was a feast for the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, there's note of verse 4 in the ESV, and there are other, the, the newer trans, uh, manuscripts, the, the ESV and other translations, some of them were translated from earlier manuscripts closer to the original text. If you've got like a King James or other translations that were translated from the more newer manuscripts, uh, they're going to have a verse 4 which talks about how an angel would come and stir the water. And by the way, I think that did happen because later in the context here, it's, we'll see it referenced. But, it's, but in verse 5, one man was there who... Uh, had been an, an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, to an, an going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up and take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Isn't that interesting? He healed him, but did he save him? No. By the way, you want to talk about a miracle? He had been an invalid for 38 years. We've got a physical therapist in the room. What had happened to his legs of 38 years of being an invalid? Sherry? Total atrophy. She's a physical therapist. She's actually worked on me. That's why I'm doing so well up here. You've got to go to physical therapy after that for a while, don't you? Learn how to walk again. After 38 years of totally being paralyzed, Jesus says, get up. And the man walks without therapy. Sorry, Sherry, you're not as necessary as you thought you were earlier. No. <laughs> but he says to him, see, you're made well. Now go stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. You do know that Jesus told the woman in the, caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. You'll hopefully understand why God says to people, don't sin anymore. What's the purpose of the law? To show you you can't keep it. And these people had been miraculously healed by God but at the, or saved from death by God, but they hadn't been saved yet. And he says to them, you got to get your spiritual condition taken care of. Folks, there are people out there that think, if I just clean my life up, I'll be all right. If I can just stop drinking, everything will be fine. If I can just get off these drugs, I'll be okay. And man, I'd love to see you stop drinking. I'd love to see you get off of drugs. But if you've got a spiritual condition in which you are lost and you haven't had the Spirit of God come in, you're not going to be any better. You're actually going to end up worse if you don't get that fixed. Because the demon spirits are going to find the house swept empty and they're going to bring some more with them. We need Jesus in us and controlling us to protect us from the evil one and his minions. Go to John 17. John chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about his death. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. By the way, did you catch that? This is eternal life, folks, that you know God and Jesus, whom the Father sent. I glorified you, Jesus said on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, have, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, hang on for a second. Jesus said, I've kept them in your name. I'm asking you now to keep them in your name. And I have protected them, and I want you to protect them from the evil one. What's he talking about? Is he saying, don't let Satan do anything in their life? No. Because as you know, these disciples that he was praying for all went through horrific martyrdom. So what's he saying then when he says, I've kept them in your name, you keep them in your name, and protect them from the evil one? What's he talking about? Spiritual, the eternal security of our salvation. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. Spoiler fate, I love this. Kept in heaven for you who are shielded by God's power until that day of salvation. Folks, 
we are kept in him by him. But that only happens when we not only acknowledge our need of a Savior, but we repent of our sin, we grieve over our sin, we change our attitude toward our sin, and we say, God, I need your righteousness. And he not only erases our sin, he does what? He puts his spirit within us to seal us, and at that moment we are born again, children of God, held on to by God, and he protects us from the evil one. Oh, he'll allow Satan to do things in our lives for his glory. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that a surpassing power comes from him and not from us. But at the same time, we don't ever have to worry about the demon spirits ever trying to get in again because there's someone greater who's already there. And so listen to me. I know a lot of people think that I just cleaned my life up. I'll be okay. No, you must be born again. Because even if you clean your life up, you've just opened yourself up even more because now you think you're okay and your guard is down, and the evil one is going to do more damage. But 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says this, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we need to know this. You do know in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't have time to go there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, the scripture says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against what? Principalities and authorities of the evil realm. Therefore, we must put on the full armor of God. And he's the one that's going to protect us from the evil one. Jesus is protecting us, like I said, from the evil one does not mean that nothing bad will happen to us in this life. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 38 talks about how there's going to be nakedness, danger, sword, but none of that will separate us from the love of God. We're in John 17. Go back to John 16. Look at verses 32 through 33. Jesus in John 16, verse 32 said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribble or tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm not asked for a show of hands, but how many of you have kind of subconsciously thought, man, how come life's so hard? I thought Jesus loved me. A lot of us have kind of thought, man, I've given my life to Christ and man, everything's going to be good now. By the way, there are plenty of preachers out there who will tell you that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I just referenced it, but I want you to see it. Go to 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verses 7 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. But we have this treasure, Christ in us, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. How many of us try to put on that we're more than we really are? How many of us try to put up a good show to make people think we're spiritual more than we are? How many preachers love to exaggerate about the numbers of the people they're preaching to? How many people got saved? Actually, we're afflicted in every way, Paul said. But what? Not crushed. Don't miss that. If you don't mind writing in your Bibles, underline the second half of all of these. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. Anybody else here been perplexed? And maybe you are now. I am. There's lots of stuff going on in my life right now that I'm saying, Lord, I don't know what to do next. But not in despair. Why am I not in despair? Why are you not in despair? Because he has promised that he will tell us. He's promised that if we lack wisdom, he'll give it. But we need to believe it. We're struck down. I'm sorry, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted. But what? Not forsaken. not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. By the way, Paul said that in Romans 8, 31 through 38 that I just referenced. We're given over to death every day for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Being protected from the evil one doesn't mean that you won't have trouble, that you won't have sickness, that there won't be death, that there won't be loss, that there won't be struggles in this life. That's not what the, it means to be protected from the evil one. Protected from the evil one means that 
you have been born again, sealed by the Spirit, you're eternally secure, and all the promises that are ours are now available because we're His children and we're spared from His wrath. And we need to know that truth and renew our minds on a daily basis because we need to know I'm going to be okay even though I don't understand. I may be even perplexed, but I'm going to keep going because he's promised he'll never leave me nor forsake me. He's promised that he'll walk me through it. I'm not going to do what my flesh wants to do. I'm not going to try to escape. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to allow God to fix what needs to be fixed. I'm going to leave it to him. He's promised that he'll finish what he started. He's promised that he cares about my marriage. He promised that he cares about my children. He's promised that he cares about all these things. And he, I'm more valuable than the birds. I'm more valuable than the grass of the field. And I'm going to keep going because of who he is. And the good news is, you don't have to buck yourself up. All you got to do is just believe what he's promised because he's going to hold on to you anyway. And Folks, let me just tell you, it's time that the world sees this. As we go through everything that everybody else is going through. And they say, why do you have reason for the hope that's in you? Could you tell me about it? All right, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you where we were this weekend. So I let you know. I took a Sunday off and took my family to Disney. But my body's falling apart, as you know, with my back, and now my knees needing to be replaced on top of that. And I was walking around Disney like this half of the day, and so sometimes I would say to my family, you know what, I'm just going to sit down and find a nice bench here, and I'm going to sit on this bench and people watch. And I'm not lying to you, one of the greatest hour and a half of my day on Sunday was sitting on one bench where I didn't move. It was awesome. But God, in His plan had people just coming up to talk to us. Nicole and AJ could tell you it's true because they actually spent 45 minutes with me on that bench and it was awesome. We had a blast laughing and talking. We actually, I was teaching them how to people watch and pray about people and notice things and have God would put something on your heart and you'd pray for folks. And people started coming up to us just to talk. And all of a sudden doors would open as I'd squeeze and sniff and thump and find out where they were spiritually and one of those conversations I told you about earlier happened over by the flagpole, because there's a great bench right over there by the flagpole as well. And as I was there, all of a sudden, I had so much fun allowing God to just let me throw some seed and water it. But what I'm saying to you is, those opportunities came about because my body wasn't working. You just never know. You just never know. Once His Spirit is in you, He's the one holding on to you. Let me quote some verses to you, but please write them down. I want you to go look at them for yourself. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says this. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 39. Write that down and go look at it. Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. That settles it right there, doesn't it? And I've already given you 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, where it says that we have this hope, this salvation that's being held on to by God for us, kept in heaven for you. Now, Judas was lost because he was never saved. When Jesus says in John 17, I've lost none except the one doomed to destruction, the Bible says that he was never saved. Let me show you a couple of scriptures that kind of brings that out. Go to John 13 real quick. I want to close with that waterless places, so we're going to hit this fast. Go to John chapter 13. Look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet then only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knew that there was one there that was not of them. He never was. Go to verses 21 in chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. You want to talk about seven worse spirits coming in. Satan himself entered him. By the way, does that help you understand what happened to Judas next in the next few hours? Satan himself entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one knew at the table why he had said this to him. Some thought that, it, that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what was we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. By the way, write this down and look at it later. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 says, They went out from us, but their going out from us shows that they were never of us. For if they were of us, they would have stayed. And then he goes on and he says, but you have an anointing. As we close tonight, we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the waterless places these evil spirits go through is. Or why the evil spirits begged to be cast into the pigs instead of into the abyss before it was time. You do know, remember in the story of the man healed of the legion of demons, the demons begged him. Have you come to one man? They, they said they, when, he, they, when, Jesus, when they met Jesus, they said, have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? They knew that there's a time coming that they're going to go to that place of torment for eternity. They begged him to go into the pigs, which we could sit here and wrestle over, but going to the pigs didn't last long. Because those pigs all killed themselves and drowned themselves, and now they're out of pigs again. We could try to wrestle with what are these waterless places that they go through. But we'd be speculating on things that we really haven't been given insight into. Oh, I could try to take you down a journey of this, that, and the other, and look at this and look at that. But folks, let's be honest. We don't really fully understand how the spiritual realm works. Be okay with that, because the people that try to go deeper than they should, I have seen them mess themselves up. Oh, and by the way, Becky and I went through a period of that early in our marriage when we were in a young church, and we were or young in a church, and got caught up with these people. All got into exorcism, and man, we started seeing demons everywhere, and Thank God he started to show me that we're not to look for Satan, but we're to look for Jesus. We got set free from that mess. But let me just tell you, don't try to figure things out that the scripture hasn't revealed. There's a spiritual realm and you want to be on the good side. But we do know that there is a spiritual realm. We do know that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. You know that, right? Jesus already talked about that. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 6 talked to how he's carried us into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13, again, write these down, look at them later. Colossians 1.13 talks about it. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, let me give those to you again. Matthew 12, 22 through 28. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. Colossians 1.13, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But to go any further into trying to fully grasp how the spiritual realm works and to act like we fully understand it would be silly. It would be silly to do it. But David does give us a small glimpse of the meaning of a waterless place. And we're going to close in Psalm 63. Go to Psalm 63. Look at verses 1 through 8. You do know 1 Corinthians 13 verses 9 through 13 says that one day we'll see clearly. Right now we see dimly, as through a, a glass dimly. But one day we're going to see clearly. Right now we don't fully understand and be okay with that. But listen to Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8, and see if the Spirit doesn't talk to you a little bit about what, our, what a waterless place was. O God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You know what a waterless place is? Any places without Jesus. Isn't he the living water? So that's enough. These demons are without Jesus and will be for eternity. They might get some relief to be in a control of a human being for a little season, but their dominion is short and short-lived. I don't want to be in a waterless place, and I don't ever have to be, because those who drink of Jesus will never thirst again. He's in you. You don't need to see another miracle. Someone greater than Jonah is already within you. Someone greater than Solomon is already in you. You don't ever have to be in a waterless place ever again. I love you. We'll see you next year. Thanks for coming.